We turn to Acts chapter 24. That's page 933, if you would like to use the Bible that's provided for you in the pew rack. Um, do, do grab some Bible and follow along. And the most important thing you're going to hear today is not what I have to say, it's what God has to say. And so we want you to treasure his word by reading along with it, even as you hear me uh, reading it aloud. Acts 24. And last we left Paul, he had been brought down to uh, Caesarea by uh, the Roman guard, uh, Claudius Lysias, who was kind of watching over Paul. And he had been brought to Caesarea so that he could be Um, brought before the uh, governor of the region, the Roman uh, procurator, Felix. So that's that's where we're picking up. Now he's in Caesarea. He's about to be brought before uh, Felix. Beginning in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Zertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. When the governor had nothing, had nodded, excuse me, had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or even in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. But Felix... 
having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus in desiring to do the Jews a favor. Felix left Paul in prison. Thus far, the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word for us today. We have laws in our nation to prevent uh, witnesses coming to court and giving false testimony. It's a crime, perjury. Uh, And it's a serious crime and can send people to prison, and yet it doesn't keep people from committing it. Uh, You can look up online uh, the number of people who have been wrongfully convicted, sometimes for decades, sent to prison, because a witness was called who falsely testified against them, sometimes uh, out of vindictiveness. They didn't like the person, so they made up. They fabricated a story, sometimes because uh, they want a reward from the police. They think the police will will like it if they uh, accuse this person, and so they make up a false story. Well, there's a similar uh, law in uh, the Bible. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That, that law, properly understood, uh, takes place or makes the most sense, I should say, in the context of a courtroom. And it's a very serious law because the consequences of bearing false witness are serious. You could potentially send somebody to their death. You could falsely accuse somebody of committing a crime for which the penalty was death. You'd be stoned to death on account of your false witness. Is that not how our Savior ended up on the cross? At last, we're told in the Gospels, two worthless men came forward and they colluded together to bear false witness against Jesus. So even though there are laws in the Jewish scriptures, we still see the Jewish people disregarding that as they come before a court because they have some ulterior motive. That's what's happening here in Acts 24. As I mentioned, Paul is brought before Felix. He was the Roman governor of the region of Judea. You know one of his predecessors, Pontius Pilate. So he has the same position as Pilate, although his region has expanded. Um, He comes about 15 years after Pilate. And uh, the Roman tribune guarding Paul and governing the affair of his trial had appealed to Felix to hear the case. Uh, uh, Claudius Lysias was kind of getting overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. We'll, We'll kick this up to Felix, he says. And um, Felix grants that he'll hear the case, but only when the Sanhedrin, who were accusing Paul, arrive. 
And that's why verse 1 begins, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down. So Paul's been there, but they're waiting for this case to begin until the Sanhedrin, represented by the high priest, arrives. And, and the Sanhedrin also sent a lawyer with them, this one Tertullus. He is uh, assisting their endeavor. He is a, a, a counsel to the prosecution but he's not an honest one. And so here we have in our story the false accuser. It's the first thing we consider this morning, the false accuser. In what ways could we say Tertullus is identified as a false accuser? Well, almost every way. First, look at how he begins his speech uh, in the middle portion of verse 2. He says to Felix, Since through you... We enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight most excellent Felix reforms are being made for this nation, then in every way and everywhere we accept, we, the Jews, accept this with all gratitude. He opens his speech by lying to Felix about Felix. You're the greatest, Felix. We, the Jewish people, love you. Your reforms have been embraced by our people. All of your policies we champion. And I, I looked it up, and the, the, the official legal term for, for what he's done here, it's called a load of malarkey. That's what this is. He, he's, just, he's just making this up. Because you know what? The Jewish people hated Felix. They hated him. Why? Well, he had a reputation for being particularly cruel to the Jewish people under his charge. He was born, Felix was born a slave, though uh, eventually he worked his way up to become the, the governor of this region. He was freed by uh, the emperor Claudius. But according to Roman historian uh, Tacitus, quote, Felix had the power of a king, but the mind of a slave. He was born a slave, he became a king, but he never lost that instinct. And what uh, Tacitus means is that he was brutal. He was uncivilized. He was brutish and barbaric and cruel. And so he alienated Jewish support because of the violence that he enacted against the people. The moment that he sensed an uprising, you know, that's the thing that made the Romans so insecure. Are people going to have a riot? Are they going to, is there going to be this incursion? What, he, would, he would stamp it down with force. Overkill was Felix's M.O., He's also corrupt. His wife, we read of her later on, Drusilla, he stole away from another Middle Eastern uh, king when she was only a teenager. He saw her, he liked her, and he took her. He was so corrupt, I almost expected uh, everybody to say, how corrupt was he? He's so corrupt that Emperor Nero removed him from office. Now, you don't need to be a great historian to know that Nero was not the most upright of emperors. And yet even he saw Felix was bad news. And so he removed him from his position of authority. But Tertullus glosses over all this. Felix, we love you. You're the greatest. You, everything you've done, it's been to our benefit. We wish you could live forever. We wish you were our governor forever. Matthew Henry says, see here the unhappiness of great men, and a great unhappiness it is to have their services praised beyond measure and never to be told of their faults. Hereby they are hardened and encouraged in evil. That's the goal of Tertullus's uh, opening speech. She wants to encourage him towards evil. Tertullus 
lies about the governor to soften him to believe the lies about Paul. There are three of those. First, it's that Paul was a rabble rouser. In the words of the false accuser, in verse 5, he's a plague, a disease, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world. Again, this is a dangerous and a serious charge because Romans feared insurrection more than anything else. It was a seriously dangerous lie because Felix had that reputation of mercilessly putting down any Jewish insurgents. That's the first lie. Uh, Paul's a rabble-rousler. The second lie is that Paul's a ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. Also in verse 5, Paul will address this a little bit head-on when he says that uh, they call what I belong to a sect. The, the implication, that's in verse 14, I, I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, he's saying what they're calling, my Christianity, they're calling a sect. The idea here is that Tertullus is trying to paint the Christian faith the way, in political terms, um, there, there isn't a lot known about the Nazarenes, even if they're, was a group at all by this name. It was likely just another name for Christians, those who followed Jesus of Nazareth. They were called Nazarenes. But, but he uses this quasi-military term, ringleader, that, so that what Felix hears is that this man is kind of the leader of an alt-right group of terrorists, a, a sect, the kind you find um, plotting today on the dark web in obscure chat rooms. That's, that's kind of what Felix would be hearing. Uh, and that lie was meant to vindicate the Jewish people. Look, we're not, we're not the crazy ones. It's these Christians, not us. Uh, we are pious religious observers. They're political fanatics. That's the second lie. The third lie is that Paul, verse 6, tried to profane the temple. Now, while there's no evidence at all that Paul had actually profaned the temple, by inserting the word try... He tried to profane the temple. You know, Paul even acknowledges that nobody, he says, nobody can, can uh, convince you of wrongdoing um, or of my wrongdoing in terms of what I did at the temple. Verse 18, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. There's no evidence, Paul says, and Tertullus knows that. That's why he doesn't say Paul profaned the temple. He says Paul was trying to profane the temple because you insert that word try and what happens? Well, it becomes, that charge becomes a lot harder to either prove or disprove. So he's simply casting aspersions. But all in all, Paul is presented before the governor here as being a threat. But everything charged against him is patently false. And what we have here is Tertullus, not as a representative of the Sanhedrin. No, no, no. He is a representative of Satan. A representative of the accuser. Of the brethren, as Satan is called in Revelation chapter 12. He's doing what Satan does best lying. Lying. It almost sounds like it's not that big of a deal. You hear that? Lying. We talk about fibbing and shading the truth, the way we dress up this heinous sin. We speak of little white lies as though they're almost cute and appealing. But let's be clear. Lies are deadly dangerous. Deadly. Uh, During World War II, there was a, um, in England, a poster 
designed to warn citizens, and I suppose those in uh, working in intelligence as well, uh, uh, a sign that you would see on uh, um, walls and telephone poles around uh, London that was designed to warn people of the dangers of unwittingly disclosing troop movements or other military secrets. And the poster contained these words, loose talk costs lives. Loose talk costs lives. And that's certainly Paul's experience here. His life is on the line because of the the loose talk, the unguarded, uncontrained speech of Tertullus, and not just Tertullus, but others. Verse 9, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so, but they weren't so. They're lying. Why? So that Paul would be killed. Lying is a dangerous, deadly dangerous sin. What's even more serious than that? You think, what could be more serious than threatening the lives of Innocent people through our speech. Falsehood is more serious than that. How so? Because falsehood, and listen to this, it's so important to understand. Falsehood is a direct affront upon the majesty of our God. Falsehood is is an attack on the character of our God, who is truth itself, who can not lie, who never lies, who will never lie. There is nothing more antithetical to the character of God. There's nothing more antithetical to the call of God's people than falsehood. God is truth. We are to be people of truth. Lying, it's not even part of of God's vocabulary, if we could put it that way. It's not part of his arsenal. And yet, when going into battle against the Almighty, all Satan can do is lie. That's the only thing he can do. That's the only thing. So false accusations are the oldest and the most effective weapon that Satan has been using against the church. And when you have been the target, you know just how painful and powerful such lies can be. Have you ever had your reputation threatened because of lies, because of mischaracterization? You know how serious it is. The Psalms help us express the seriousness of false speech. Psalm 26, David uh, prays, Vindicate me, O God. Psalm 120, the first of the Psalms of Ascent, begins like this. Save me from deceitful speech. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips. That's how serious falsehood is. We need God to save us from it. Or there's Psalm 52. I'd like you to turn there. Look look at Psalm 52. So instructive for us in understanding the seriousness of a false of falsehood and, and false speech. Psalm 52 is helpful to us because also um, it, it gives us the historical setting. Not every psalm does that, but the historical setting for which David wrote it. It says, A masculine of David when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul David has come to the house of, Ahim- uh, of Ahimelech. So He's writing about one of his enemies, Doeg the Edomite. And what does he write? Well, look at verse 1. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Well, who was Doeg? Doeg was one of Saul's chief henchmen. 
And Saul sent Doeg to kill the priests of Nob because word had come back that the high priest there, Himelech, had given sanctuary to David. When he's on the run from Saul, he receives sanctuary protection there. Word comes to Saul and he says to Doeg, I want you to go and I want you to murder the priests of that region. And Doeg did, and then some. Listen to this from 1 Samuel 22. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day, he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. 85 priests he killed, but he didn't stop there. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and its women and its children and its babies. The man was a mass murderer. And yet, how does David describe him? One who boasts in evil? Yes. One who loves evil? Yes. But what does he really focus on? He says, Doeg's a liar. That's what makes him wicked. Your tongue plots destruction. You worker of deceit. You love lying more than the truth. You love words that devour. You have a deceitful tongue. And you almost want to say, David, I think you're missing the point. An entire town was killed because of this man. Innocent men, women, children, even newborns. And you're, you're going to talk about the fact that he didn't always tell the truth. You're missing the main point. No, no, no. We miss the main point. Because David describes Doeg in this way to align him with the one who has been lying from the very beginning. To say this man is on the side of the devil. This man is with the one who whispered those many years ago. Did God really say? Did God really say? And tragically, Tertullus in Acts 24 has taken the same side. He wars against almighty God and God's servant. Which Paul was. And to do that requires deception. It requires falsehood because all of God's ways are true. All of God's ways are upright. And that means, friends, that when you stand for the Lord, you will stand accused by Satan and by those who are on his side because it's all they can do. Falsely accuse you. Hurl lies at you. Calvin says this, Is it to be wondered at that the children of God in the present day labor under false accusations and that when they've endeavored to conduct themselves uprightly, they're ill reported of as though we, he says, as we have the devil for our enemy, it is indeed impossible for us to escape being loaded with his lies. And he goes on, we see that slanderous tongues did not spare even the son of God, a consideration which should induce us to bear more patiently our condition since it is certain that we have here described the common lot of the whole church. What is the common lot of the whole church, Calvin? What's our common experience? To be loaded up with the devil's lies. We have the false accuser, Tertullus. But in in contrast to him, secondly and finally, the faithful witness in the person of Paul. The faithful witness, verse 10 And following, Paul is given his opportunity. You're back in Acts 24, verse 10 and following. He's given his opportunity to make his uh, defense. 
And he proves himself to be a faithful witness to the truth of God and to the God of truth. To the truth of God and the God of truth. How does he do this? And how can we do the same? How can we be ready to be a faithful witness to the truth, even when we're loaded up with the devil's lies? I want you to notice there are two things that mark a faithful witness here. The first is that a faithful witness does not deviate from the truth. The faithful witness does not deviate from the truth. The faithful witness does not deviate from the truth. That's me not deviating from my subpoint here. The faithful witness does not deviate. Look, Paul stands up and he gives the same speech that he's already given at least two times recorded for us. And it won't be the last time he gives it either. In fact, the text tells us, if you look towards the end of the chapter, that it appears that he had regular meetings with, with Felix... Um, this is verse 26, or yeah, verse 26. At the same time, he won money from him, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. So he's brought frequently before Felix for two years, but Paul's tune never changed. Why? Because the truth is the truth in any situation. Something our world needs to be reminded of the truth is not Plato, it can't be molded to what we want it to be. The truth does not conform to our situation or our circumstance. Rather, everything is to conform to the truth. To the truth. So Paul does not deviate from his story. He did not defile the temple. More importantly, he uses this opportunity to not deviate from God's story. So verses 14 and following. This I confess to you. This is what I'll admit to. That according to the way, the Christian way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. In other words, I'm not believing anything new here. I'm not making up stuff. And I have a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. And he repeats himself somewhat in verse 21. He says, I said this before. This is the only thing that they can accuse me of that I said, verse 21, it's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Paul is constrained to preach the gospel. He'll say elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And so yet again, he does not deviate. He says, this is a time for me to tell you about the resurrection that we have in Jesus Christ. I worship the one true living God, the God of the living. It doesn't matter if it's before magistrates or if it's before mobs. Paul does not deviate. And I pray that you will never be brought before a mob. And I imagine you won't be brought before magistrates. But what about that cantankerous family member who hates your faith? What about the hostile... Uh, co-worker. What about um, from year to year, from this year to the next? Will you deviate? Is your message contingent upon your audience, upon your situation? You see, Paul could not care less about the receptivity of the message. What he cared about and what, what we must care about is not the receptivity of it, but instead of the responsibility that we have to be faithful, to be faithful and to be truthful. That's our responsibility, to be faithful and true. He leaves the results up to God. So a faithful witness does not deviate. Second, a faithful witness does not dilute the message. Look at verse 25 in particular. At this point, Felix is determined that he's not ready to make a decision. He's going to wait for the tribune to come back down to Caesarea. A few days later, he summons Paul back before him, and he has his wife, Drusilla, there. And they want to talk about the Christian faith. He gives Paul an opportunity. Preach to me. Tell me about this 
this Christianity. Verse 25. Paul gives a sermon with three main points. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Wow. You know, think about it. Okay, so you're under arrest. You're under house arrest. And the man who holds the key to your freedom needs to be won over to what you believe. Won over that, you, that, that there's something appealing in, in this message, that you're not a threat. He needs to be won over by your discourse on the main tenets of Christianity. So what do you talk about? You're given that opportunity. What do you talk about? Maybe love, joy, peace. Talk about the mansions that Jesus is preparing for his people in heaven. Not for Paul. He talks about these topics that would have had the most pastoral weight, the most practical significance to a governor who's known the whole world over for being corrupt, heavy-handed, and cruel. In front of the man who is actively permitting injustice to occur in court, Paul speaks of righteousness. In front of uh, his wife, with whom he had committed adultery and stolen her from her first husband, he speaks of self-control. And all this leading to the final judgment. And it's when, when Felix hears that final point that he, he gets nervous. Right? Did you notice that? It says that Felix was alarmed. Right after hearing about the coming judgment, he was alarmed. And so... He throws Paul back in prison. Paul does not dilute the message. And what happens? He doesn't make a friend. He gains an enemy. Felix is meant to stand impartially as the judge in a case in which the Sanhedrin through Tertullus are accusing Paul. But now Paul has gained another accuser by throwing him in prison. Felix is is opposing Paul. Now he's against Paul. He is accusing Paul, as it were. And so the question for all of us today is, Are we ready to stand as a faithful witness for God before false accusers, knowing that this is where it could lead? Will you you stand up for what is true at your workplace, even in the face of all sorts of maybe policies or agendas that, that are not uh, coherent with your Christian worldview? What about in school? What about with your family? Will you not deviate from the central message, nor dilute it to make it more palatable? Well, what if people go after your reputation? What if they tarnish your character? What if they question your motives? Are you able in that time to cling to the promise of Jesus when he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all sorts of falsehoods against you on my account? Maybe. Maybe you are. But I want to address finally in closing this question. What if the accusations aren't false? What if they're not? Sometimes what makes us clam up and turn and run and hide when given an opportunity to to bear witness before God isn't the accusations made by people out there, but by a voice in here. A voice that says, who do you think you are standing up for Almighty God, for a holy God? You're a sinner. 
You're a doubter. You don't even always believe the stuff that you tell people you believe. Who do you think you are to talk about morality, you wretch? You, you sinned against your, your spouse this morning, and now you're going to tell your coworker how they ought to live? Sit down. Shut up. Keep it to yourself. You know that voice. That's Satan. That's the accuser. The temptation is to believe that he's right, that he's not lying, that these aren't false accusations. You say, I am a sinner. I am a wretch. I'm a hypocrite. I am a doubter. I should sit down. I should shut up. I should keep to myself. I should get in line. Who am I to bear witness before a holy God? Because these things are true, aren't they? Well, no. They're half-truths. And do you know what half-truths make? They make whole lies. And so we want to get after the whole truth instead. Here's the whole truth. And it's so important that you listen to this. Here's the whole truth, friend. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, in God's eyes, the only eyes that matter, in God's judgment, the only judgment that matters, you are in Christ. If you believe in Jesus, that's how God sees you, in Jesus. That means what's true of him is now true of you. What defines him is what defines you. He defines you. And that means you are not a worthless, wretched sinner. No, no, no. That's not how God defines you anymore. That would be a false statement. Because now you have a righteousness that is outside of you that that defines you. A righteousness that's never threatened of being tarnished by your poor performance in the Christian life. You have a Savior who died for your sins and who buried your sins with him in the tomb. And, and for Satan to dredge those up to you as though they're relevant charges means he's lying to you. He's lying. Don't believe him. He's the false accuser. And we face our false accusers and even the false accuser by fleeing to our strong advocate. In your moment of weakness, pray to that advocate. John Newton prays to him like this. Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. That's all you need to say. Satan, you don't have the whole story. That's a half truth you're telling. And a half truth is a whole lie. Here's the whole truth. Jesus died for me. Jesus loved me. Jesus gave himself for me. I am in him. His righteousness is mine. That's the whole truth, Satan. Don't believe him. Do you want to be a faithful witness for the Lord, friends? Then you must know first that you have a faithful Savior, a faithful friend, a faithful advocate. He will always defend your cause so that you may defend his. Let's pray. Gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have brought forward the final judgment uh, in, in time, as it were, at the cross. That, that 
the condemnation that would be ours, we can see, no, it, it took place at Calvary and Christ took it for us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, because we have faith in Christ, we are now the righteousness of God. You've showed us the final analysis. You've given us our, our final evaluation. You've told us everything that ultimately matters. And so would you give us greater faith when we are faced with those who would, would bring accusations against us, and especially the devil who loves to do that? Would we believe instead that we have a righteousness in Christ that nothing can take away, that we have an advocate before the Father who is continually pleading our cause, and would that give us indeed the boldness and the courage to defend his cause as well? We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.